0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. In this episode, we once again explore the ripple effects caused by the OFAC sanctions against tornado cash where my previous episode covered the events from a legal perspective. In this one, my guest Martin Kopelman and I chat about the impact this has had on builders in the community. Specifically, we look at how the tornado action helped reveal centralizing forces in Ethereum. We talk about compliance, overcompliance, censorship, and the need for decentralization. Now, before we kick off, I just want to share an announcement from one of our partners from the last ZK Summit, Anoma. Anoma. Anoma has recently released a new white paper that better describes their system and architecture. It also shows how all the awesome cryptographic libraries they've been developing fit together. Find this paper at anoma.net slash papers. We are adding the link in the show notes, so be sure to check it out. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor.
1: Today's episode is sponsored by Alio. Alio is a new layer one blockchain that achieves the programmability of Ethereum, the privacy of Zcash, and the scalability of a rollup. If you're interested in building private applications, then check out Alio's programming language called Leo. Leo enables non-cryptographers to harness the power of ZKPs to deploy decentralized exchanges, hidden information games, regulated stablecoins, and more. Visit leo-lang.org to start building. That's leo-lang.org. You can also join Alio's incentivized testnet 3 by downloading and running a Snark OS node. No sign-up is necessary to participate. For questions, join their Discord at alio.org slash discord. So thanks again, Alio. Now, here is Anna's interview with Martin from Gnosis.
0: Today, I'm here with Martin Koppelman, the co-founder of Gnosis. I want to say
1: welcome to the show, Martin. Hey, nice to be here.
0: Last time you were on the show, we actually talked about CowSwap and the work that you guys were doing around that topic. This is over a year ago. Today, the goal of the show is to talk more about like tornado. We're gonna to look at like the impact on the ecosystem. This is kind of why I wanted to bring you on. But I definitely also want to hear about the update on Gnosis. Like what's happened since you were, you know, last on the show. I know a lot has gone on, so it'd be great to hear from you about that.
1: Yeah, maybe to follow up kind of from from the last episode. So uh last time we talked about um, yeah, back in the day it was probably still called Gnosis Protocol, then kind of was turned into, into CowSwap. So CowSwap now or CAR Protocol is now its own project and became independent from Gnosis. Um, and we did this with second lar- very large project, uh, the SAFE. Just uh, now they started Safe DAO and released the SAFE token and, and 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 similar with with CowSwap. So we had this model that we incubated other projects as part of Gnosis but eventually decided, okay, they should be their own things. And uh, they kind of should give back to Gnosis and to Gnosis token holders by allocating a good chunk, uh, usually around 20% of their new tokens to the Gnosis DAO. So in a way, those, from my perspective, those projects are now kind of well, friends of Gnosis or kind of still associated with Gnosis or can, kind of tightly coupled to Gnosis, but but still their own projects. Mm-hmm. Gnosis itself has focused uh, since, yeah, almost a year now um, on Gnosis chain. So yeah. we are uh, running, it was previously uh, the Xtile chain and we merged tokens and kind of, uh, yeah, it's now Gnosis chain. And our main focus is here, um, well, decentralization. And yeah, it kind of it connects to the topic. So we want to make sure that an application like a Tornado Cash. Uh, can uh, securely run on, on Gnosis Chain. So one one big goal is to have a very large and very uh, distributed validator set to really kind of have this, this idea of people running uh, a validator at home in all kinds of countries. Uh, that is, yeah, the m- largest priority of, of Gnosis Chain.
0: Interesting. Is Gnosis Chain, like xdi i remember yep. that was sort of the first time i had ever used bridges we had igor on years ago talking about right. bridging and it was in right. the p- context of that project at the time it was actually I, I don't know what it was was it was like a lock unlock two smart contracts was it a multisig
1: yeah exactly exactly okay. so that that is also kind of a nice uh, connection to uh, zero knowledge proofs because we are uh, yeah in 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 the process of upgrading those multisig bridges to zero-knowledge-based uh, uh, bridges, uh, and we are yeah working together with a team, Succinct Labs, and there are a few more teams that are doing this as well, that were able to create light clients as zero-knowledge proof, so you can run a light client of Ethereum in Gnosis Chain and more importantly, or uh, you can run light client off Gnosis Chain in Ethereum yeah. and by vi- verify it with a yeah, zero knowledge proof. And so that's how we want to upgrade our bridges.
0: I always understood um, the other way, like the sort of trying to do a ZK light client on the Ethereum side as being really challenging. Why doesn't everybody already do that?
1: <laughs> yeah, it is it is challenging <laughs> because it is challenging exactly. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. So, no, so first of all, we are in Gnosis Chain, we are using the same consensus as Ethereum. So we also have a, a beacon chain. So as soon as we were able to implement a light client of that beacon chain. Then we kind of solve both ways uh, because, yeah, in, in a way, it's, it's the same challenge. It would be different if you want to bridge whatever to, I don't know, Solana or what, something like that, then you mm-hmm. would need to within Ethereum verify Solana consensus, which might be possible. I might be not, I'm not sure. But kind of here, we just need to verify in a way within Ethereum, we need to verify Ethereum consensus or, well, Gnosis chain consensus, but it, that is the same. That is also beacon chain, so it's also Ethereum consensus.
0: Interesting, because they have the same data structure on each each side. It may it's easier to do.
1: Um, yeah, or at least at least you kind of only have to do it for. I mean, again, I think it's poss- It's potentially possible for most uh, consensus algorithms. But the good thing, uh, if you do it for Ethereum, you can also do it certainly for 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 an chain. Interesting.
0: Were you kind of waiting for the merge to happen? Like, does this only work once oh, yeah. you have POS?
1: I think the concept would, could be applied to proof of work, but of course, it doesn't make sense to to spend. Uh, I mean, this is still this, this will still take some time to kind of audit and kind of to mm. get it secure and so on. And of course, that effort we uh, well obviously we anticipated proof of stake coming, so of course we directly put the effort for proof of stake. But we are doing our merge as well, so kind of still the right now, Nose Chain change still on the. Old consensus uh, algorithm, the kind of XDI consensus algorithm. But we are doing kind of in a similar way, we are doing our merge. And then we will have two chains that both have a beacon chain, Ethereum and Gnosis chain. Uh, and then we can build this nice uh, light client bridge between those two.
0: That is so cool. This does, This really does sound like it's going to require a full episode. Let's do that when the merge, when your merge is over and we can compare merges. <laughs> I feel like that cool. would be cool. All right. Um, now let's kind of move the topic over to Tornado. Yeah. Um, I think at this point, you know, we're we're recording this about six weeks, seven weeks after it initially happened. Um, this is very on brand for the show. I often like to record things once time has passed because then we get to do kind of a historic look back at the impact instead of trying to guess. Um, I know in those early days there was a lot of hot takes and you, like I mentioned, had created this thread that really kind of put them together and, and shared a lot of the sentiment. From that, like what what was your feeling maybe as it first was happening? Where did you think this was going to go?
1: Uh yeah, I mean, I think it was immediately clear that this is a challenging moment for Ethereum and that that, yeah, in my view, it would uh or it would really be a test towards uh how decentralized uh, Ethereum is, and, and and or maybe this perspective is, or my, my perspective is, Ethereum in my view should be this global neutral, yeah, settlement layer, and how easy is it to uh, tamper with that neutrality? Because I mean, it's of course the sanctions are one thing, but if it is possible to easily kind of block some addresses, then at least technically you could do the very f- same thing. Uh, let, let's say you have two competing DEXs and and one wants to kind of I don't know kick the other out of the network. So if it's possible to to kind of just easily say okay those kind of contracts or those kind of addresses uh, get censored, then it's certainly at least thinkable that 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 is applied kind of outside the cont- context of sanctions, just in the case mm-hmm. of like businesses competing. And in my view, if that is possible, uh, then again it it really it really questions this hope to have this uh, neutral platform. Do you
0: feel like it just like it showed us examples of how censorship happened, maybe for the first time, like really in our face and like what I saw at least was like people started to have thought exercises of what could happen. And through that we learned like, oh, this is how one could censor all of Ethereum.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, I, unfortunately, it certainly stopped That what could happen. Uh, I mean, it cr- pretty quickly happened. So yeah. we are now, uh, I mean, as we speak, we are now in a situation where at least or where, where roughly I would say 50% of all the blocks that are built uh, are uh, censored uh, or kind of don't include transactions uh, to um, yeah to those sanctioned addresses. And it's uh, not at all clear that this number will remain at 50%. There are mm-hmm. quite strong indications or there are quite strong forces that that this number might very well uh, increase.
0: I mean, originally, I know there were some, some ideas around potentially the validators being those that censor. Yeah. Um, especially, I mean, this was sort of interesting timing, too, because this happened before the merge. Like, right. And there was, like, about six weeks left before the merge was going to happen. And then, yeah, there was this thought, like, as we go to proof of stake, does this make it more dangerous? Like, if it was still proof of work, would we be able to, like, be more anti-censorship or more censorship resistant? Um, Do you think that some of the narrative around that was tied to that merge? Like, do you think it was almost folks who didn't want to do the merge who might have been very loud about this?
1: I think it's it is intertwined with the question of, uh, of of proof of stake or proof of work, but it's certainly not a, that that would certainly be a mistake to say it's only a, um, it's only a problem of of, of uh, proof of stake. So mm. you absolutely had uh, the same problems or similar problems with with proof of work. I I think it's too early to to say whether uh, proof of stake or proof of work is more censorship resistant. Or leads to more centralization. I have long advocated that uh, proof of stake can, can actually lead to a more decentralized chain. At the current uh, point, I would probably have to admit that it's more nuanced. So I, I still see clear advantages in proof of stake. Uh, and, and to name to name the most obvious one, I can run. I do run a validator, and, and that's actually not too hard i mean it's effort but it's, it's absolutely mm-hmm. doable uh kind of the bar for me to previously kind of run a, a mining rig uh would be much much higher so that is kind of one of the main arguments for uh proof of stake uh, kind of to lower the entry bar for kind of self-validators in a way compared to setting up a mining rig um but yeah, there are certainly also uh elements that uh yeah, are problematic uh, problematic in, in 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 proof of stake, uh, and, and just to name one is kind of this uh, coincidence that that now kind of the main validators can very easily and be uh, custodial exchanges. So previously, kind of the miners, of course, had a had a had had quite some centralizing role. Or, well, I mean, there were only a handful of of large mining pools and kind of even maybe even fewer ASIC manufacturers but uh, then at least they were distinct entities from decentralized uh, from exchanges yeah. so it it was a it was a factor of 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 decentralization but at least you had kind of many players and now mm-hmm. kind of in a way the mining pools have become the exchanges which is certainly a problem for for decentralization yeah that kind of all, all that complexity is yeah, overshadowed or okay, kind of um, in parallel, we had this shift from or can, kind of the shift towards proposer builder separation. Uh, and that is not, and, and people mistakes so this sometimes, it's not necessarily a proof of work, proof of stake issue. It's just the, the thing that it doesn't matter whether you're the, the, the miner, uh, the mining pool, or the validator, but whoever is supposed to build the block. We have now this concept and that was previously possible, but it just became now more popular that you outsource kind of this actual activity of of collecting transactions into a block to a builder uh, and let the builder do it for you. And that is interesting because the builder might be able to produce a block that kind of it extracts more fees or more value. And that is, that is something, again, this could be done in both proof-of-work, proof-of-stake, but, but it just recently became very, very um, yeah prominent. And now kind of that's the second force of centralization that you have potentially just a small number of those builders that actually decide uh, how and when uh, transactions get included into blocks.
0: Interesting. I actually, there's a whole episode we did with the team from Flashbots, uh, just a few months ago. And this, like in that case, we talked about this PBS or right. what is it, proposer builder separation. Exactly. And actually, how that works. I think the builder in this case is sort of those MEV yeah. bo- bots, right? Those are the folks that you. Yeah. Or the, is that the finders, the searchers, or the builders? Yeah. I'm sort of yeah. blanking on that actually.
1: <laughs> previously, it was called searchers. Um, yeah. Uh, and previously, it was possible to kind of just, um, yeah, kind of find so-called bundles, so kind of small sets of transactions that would extract some value. But the rest of the block was still um, built by um, the validators. Now kind of the dominant model has switched to builders where kind of the searcher is now a builder and actually builds the whole block. And that is, in my view, a big uh, centralization force because previously it was enough to kind of um, be a specialist in in one small area, and as long as you were but now
0: you can combine roles, right? Yeah? Or you have, but uh, you have yeah, to combine
1: yeah. roles. You have to combine yeah. roles because you only win. It's not enough to kind of say, uh, "I I know about this particular dexes and I can extract some arbitrage here." Um, you need to propose a full block, so you know, need to know about everything to kind of in the end have a block that that is is winning, um, and yeah, the consequence is that currently very few builders uh, win almost all blocks and for some reason those builders have decided to not include uh, uh, tornado transactions for example yeah Mm.
0: and maybe to explain how that happened like this is because of them using specialized mev software right where like the mev the like the censorship is actually happening at the level of the the team that's building some of the software that they're running, right? It's not them individually choosing to be censoring.
1: Yes and no. so so there are again two layers. so there are builders that actually build those full blocks and they they send their blocks to so-called relays. Uh, and currently there are a handful of relays um, five five to seven, and some of those relays, including the most prominent one by flashbots themselves, uh, those relays uh, sometimes require to censor. To so kind of f- ah. flashbots would not accept a block that, that includes uh, um, a sanctioned transaction. So kind of on that level, you can have censorship. But even if there is another relayer that is um, not censoring, as long as the builder still decides or the most successful builder decides to censor, then even if you ask all, all the relays, uh, then you will still... Uh, pick the one that 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 pays the most. Uh, so, as Flashbots coincidentally also builds a successful builder, then even if you ask non-censoring kind of relays, you will still, if you just go by who pays most, you will still in most cases pick the the Flashbots built.
0: This is really interesting. Where. I know that initially, so going kind of back to those initial conversations, like it really was this idea. I, I felt like the focus tended to be on the validator custodial relationship. Right. I actually want to define that a little bit broader for anyone who's not aware. Like when you talk about it and being more separated in the past, I mean, I sort of understand this because we have the ZK validators an independent non- not attached to a custodial exchange validator. But maybe it's good for us to understand like what that separation used to be and how it's more tied.
1: Yeah, so in, in proof of work, kind of the the most successful mining pools just happened to be, I mean, usually they were miners initially themselves. So the dominant mining pools were separate from, yeah, kind of centralized exchanges. Now, uh, of course, what happened is that uh, that centralized exchanges, well, happened to have a lot of uh, well ether kind of deposited from users. so they started offering this very convenient service to users to say, dear user, mm-hmm. allow us to to use your ether uh, and we will we will use it to validate for you and kind of give you some of or most of the uh, of, of of the rewards. Uh, and of course, that leads to a situation where quite a significant percentage of the current validator set of Ethereum, uh, comes from centralized exchanges. Exactly. So those are, of course, now in a, in a quite powerful position because, I mean, exchanges always have been in a powerful position, um, but now they got an additional power that they also built um, a good percentage. um should be currently around 30-40% of, of the validators on Ethereum are coming from centralized exchanges.
0: And this may be for listeners who have tokens on exchanges. It's sort of for them to understand, like, when you just say, like, staking rewards, if that's like an option, usually that's just going to the validators that are run by these exchanges. So this is where we talk about that sort of centralizing factor. It's, it's the ease of use. It's easier UX. You don't have to run your own infra. You're not, I mean, in other networks where you would delegate through some other interface, you don't have to do that. It's all done for you. I mean, one interesting thing about Ethereum, though, is because it's like there's no delegation. Right. Each like there's only 32 ETH per validator. Um, Right. Do you feel like the average user still has some alternative if they don't want to participate in this kind of centralization, but they don't want to run their own infrastructure because it's kind of hard to do like a full, I know you're running one and it's like easy for you, but
1: I don't think it's like easy for everyone to do 32 ETH on their own. And no, of course, of course. And and, uh, in all fairness, it is, uh, even if the 32 ETH would not be the problem and uh just a small advertisement on Gnosis chain you can do it with oh. one gno that's currently 150 dollars <laughs> uh, you can become a validator but uh, but even then i have to admit uh, kind of running a validator is still it's not a ton of work but yeah in, in fairness it is work so you, you need to kind mm-hmm. of uh, check at least uh, from time to time and from time to time you will need to do something what are the alternatives the alternatives there are still kind of, there's there's a um, spectrum. So kind of, if you don't want to do a centralized exchange, the slightly better thing you can do is, is use something like uh, a liquid staking provider. Yeah, Lido is the most prominent one. I'm also there somewhat um, critical because actually Lido, yeah, also has now roughly a third of, of, of all Ether. So I also consider that a force of, of centralization. But they certainly, I would say they're certainly in a way better than centralized exchanges because they try to do it or they largely have set it up non-custodial. So they don't really control or they don't control the ESA. And they actually um, try to then work with with many validators. They are not even a validator themselves. They kind of just delegate uh, to yeah i, I think other 28 teams and and entities who are um, in
0: other jurisdictions too probably like a little bit more around right, the
1: world right right then kind of the third thing uh, that then kind of uh, if you want to go more decentralized then there are solutions like rocket pool where the requirement is stricter or it, it, it's kind of the, the number of validators uh, is is much higher. So, Rocket Pool has a permissionless model. So, in in Lido, kind of you need to be selected mm-hmm. um, as a validator. So, at the end, it's yeah, professional entities or um, that, that do it. In Rocket Pool, you can anyone can become a validator, but to do that, you have to um, yeah bring half of the uh, you have at least to bring sixteen ether yourself. Uh, so it yeah it, it's certainly more decentralized, but it also scales slower because kind of people cannot just dump a lot of ether in there. You always need kind of the same amount of ether coming from people who actually stake uh, themselves. Mm. So kind of those are kind of maybe the three the three steps, and the fourth, uh, the most decentralized thing would of course then be to run your, run your own, own data.
0: So I want to like the reason I wanted to clarify that too though is like. You just sort of mentioned there's sort of these two places where censorship can happen. If the validators censor, like could something like Lido do the censorship or not really? Would it still need to be the validators that they've delegated to actively doing it?
1: Right. So so in that sense, there are three layers. So kind of there's one, maybe the, the Lido or kind of the Lido is maybe the exception. Uh, and I would say Lido has, of course, soft powers abo- over their uh, validators because they can simply say as soon as a validator doesn't do specific things. And the most obvious uh, thing is, uh, is, I mean, if the validator would, have, for example, funnel the the, uh, the rewards to themselves instead mm-hmm. of to to kind of Lido, theoretically validators could do that. But of course, there is a the soft power relationship where Lido can, I mean, stop using this validator essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, And there are some details around kind of when this is exactly possible. But anyhow, so then the second second layer are the validators themselves. And they generally, they are in control. However, unfortunately, many have kind of chosen to give up this control about whether or not to censor by using a builder. Uh So if you are a validator and you basically just say, I blindly kind of, I mean, so how does it look like if you use a builder? Then at some point, it's your turn to build a block. But now you're just querying this API and this API gives you a hash in return. So you don't even know kind of what block you are building. You you don't even know really whether you're censoring or not. You kind of just get this, this hash and you sign it blindly. And yeah, as it happens right now, kind of this hash will most likely come from builders that is censoring. So effectively, you are, in a way, participating uh, in, in, in censorship.
0: This is interesting. And so, like, actually, just to define this a little deeper, so the custodial exchanges, are they running builders or are they actually doing sort of vanilla validation usually?
1: From what I have seen, it's a mix. So they don't run, I mean, they, they don't run builders, but they, and this is all kind of still unfolding. So mm-hmm. as far as I've seen it, Kraken is using their own As far as I can tell, basically building their own blocks, so running a a vanilla validator, uh, while uh, Coinbase has at least started to use um, builders, so flashbots.
0: I see. So custodial exchanges might also be using this software, but not always. And I guess it will depend. The liquid staking validators are those often running their own builders as well?
1: They're never running their own builders, but they... they, Are using builders or... They're validators to use builders. Okay. And yeah, so so at least at least for Lido, uh, for Lido, they kind of made, uh, yeah, kind of rules for validators, what they are supposed to do. And yes, they are supposed to use builders, which essentially means profit max- maximization, because that's really what, what you care about.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is what's so interesting in teasing this out is you are seeing like the ripple effects of one action on like maybe unlike other other kind of concepts or like when people have talked about this censorship resistance like it was to me at least like somewhat theoretical but here you can actually follow like here's the sanction here's sanctioned addresses these groups followed suit and actually like censored them and how does that actually impact overall the ecosystem's ability to censor or like Censorship resistance, basically. like, and so where where would you say we're at now? Like what percentage like you sort of mentioned this fifty percent is would you say ma- majority of this is because of the use of builders? And it is are you saying that like fifty percent of the validators at, that are out there are now using builders, and that's why that's happened? or are there like various f- forms of censorship happening?
1: Uh, it's not yet a hundred percent clear. I mean, it's just empirically clear that that uh, a lot of validators have to uh, have started using builders, mm-hmm. and it's empirically clear that uh, most of the time that's uh, a block built by Flashbots. Okay. Um, now it's it's unclear whether Flashbots is just the most suc- most successful uh, builder um, and kind of just the most profitable, and people just care about the profits. And therefore, they always uh, choose f- Flashbots because they are the most profitable, or they specifically choose Flashbots because they censor. That's not necessarily clear by just observing the current state.
0: Didn't Flashbots also release sort of an open source version where you yeah. could change yeah, yeah, that? Yeah. So like, wouldn't people be able to be running the same thing
1: without that censorship? Again, again, there are there are other relays um, that uh, do not censor, and they are they are somewhat being used. So currently, twenty percent of the blocks that use builders uh, come from other relays that don't. I mean, that some of them also censor, but not all. Mm. Um, but I mean, that's not enough. Because again, you need also the uh, the successful builders, and if the most successful builders are the kind of the most one of the most successful is by flashbots themselves. So uh, so as long as that runs only on flashbots, and you again ask all relays, even those that don't censor, you will still pick, pick the one that's uh, that censors because it's
0: the most profitable. I see. So this this impact. I mean, so far what we've talked about primarily has been this act of censorship. In what you're even saying, a lot of it sounds like since a lot of these actors are, it's game theory, they're looking for the biggest profit, like they're not, you know, necessarily acting out of trying to be compliant or not. How do you think things could actually be changed to be more decentralized, like to be more censorship resistance in in the way it's built right now? Like, do you would you almost call for like a competitor of Flashbots to not be Flashbots and not be doing that, but be as successful? Like, is that...
1: Yeah. Kind of what you'd need. I, I I would instead try to to focus on solutions that makes this this building process uh, less relevant. So in my view, um, decentralization would come from a lot of validators that actually uh, produce their blocks themselves. I feel like having a large number of validators that is supposed to help against censorship resistance because you you say can kind if of you can not censor them all, but if this large set of validators. All just uses three builders, then yeah, all you need to do is censor those three builders. So in my view, what we need to come to is to make it uh, possible to build your own block without... And of course, the the downside currently, I mean, of course, it is possible to build your own block, but yes, currently, it is very likely more profitable to outsource this. So Mm -hmm. in my view, kind of one core uh, goal should be In in a way to reduce the MEV, so to reduce uh, the amount of money you can get extra by building the block in a specific way, and yeah, there are a handful of or uh, there are plenty of proposals uh, out there how to do it, and they would all kind of tighten the freedom of how you can build blocks. So currently you have a ton of freedom. So in your block you usually have two three hundred transactions. Uh, and there are absolutely no rules. So, for example, you don't have to sort them by gas fees. You don't, I mean, you can really order them in any way. And every rule, every additional rule of how to to build the block would at least reduce the freedom and therefore reduce this kind of additional leverage you have in extracting MEV. Mm.
0: Although I'm going to throw back to that episode we did because what we talked about there was like using threshold decryption or like some sort of... You know, cryptographic way to reduce MeV, and what they were saying was like, you can do that, but it's like whack-a-mole. Like you'll bump that down and MeV will pop up somewhere else.
1: yeah, I don't buy that <laughs> so i mean I mean, I mean, you won't get it to zero, but you can absolutely reduce it
0: and do you feel like there's not is there not enough action on that? Do you feel like people have sort of like accepted MeV as like a fun new ecosystem, and they're not really trying to fix yeah, it? Yeah I mean, it's also <laughs> quite profitable, yeah. Interesting. So I, I would like to kind of hear from you sort of other ripple effects that you've seen since that OFAC action and since since the community has started to react.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was certainly interesting to see how different different players uh, reacted. One, one thing I found uh, quite problematic was that also kind of some RPC providers have started to censor even kind of Requesting or kind of requesting state uh, of mm. a contract, which yeah, which in my view is, is is crazy. That's almost like saying kind of you go to Etherscan and and it would say you can't you we we don't give you the answer of what the state of this contract is because wow. it's a it's a censored one. I saw one RPC provider yeah, if you would include kind of just the address of a yeah kind of one of those censored addresses in any transaction so so you wouldn't even necessarily do a transaction um, to this address you would kind of just uh, do a transaction to another contract that would contain as a payload um, this address even then they would would censor that that message because mm. it, it kind of contains a forbidden word kind of so Weird. it's completely insane because like then it would mean even if you like let's say you wanted to create a blacklist, <laughs> you wanted to comply and you wanted to create a blacklist, so you couldn't do that because, because kind of you would need to tell your contract this contract is on the blacklist and this transaction would, would not be make accepted, it blacklisted, <laughs> be because it contains this forbidden thing. So the sad reality is that um, yeah, that th- those news simply caused a panic. I would say. Uh, and I think in many cases, uh, projects completely uh, overreacted. And yeah, they, I mean it's understandable. It's kind of yeah. The guidance uh, was was minimal. Um, mm-hmm. There was kind of just this announcement, uh, uh, and and yeah, many of those practical questions were were not answered at all. Um, I feel like with the little bit guidance coming out from uh, from the relevant authorities. I would say in many cases, projects have completely overreacted and have Mm -hmm. done things that weren't at all required. Um, But yeah, again, it's kind of understandable that if there's uncertainty, many decide to better be safe. In most cases, if you have an Ethereum wallet, you don't run your own uh, Ethereum full node. Uh, And of course you could, and ideally you would. Yeah, in many cases you don't do that, but instead you point to... Uh, to an external node and that is yeah called an RPC provider and the most prominent one uh, is Infura but but there are pl- plenty others uh, anchor and um, and more. And some of those um, I'm not exactly sure what the state of Infura is but uh, I, I think Infura also censored trends I'm, I'm I, I, I don't know but I, I I've seen uh, others censoring even requests uh, that would just ask state of this contract certainly would censor transactions um, to those um, addresses, but yeah.
0: Interesting. So this, what you're saying here is like, this was not an ask of OFAC at all. And yet they sort of started to say like, just to, you know, make sure that we're not in any way infringing in any way, we're going to kind of overstep what we actually need to do. Any sort of mention, even if it's like a query, not even like necessarily a, like a transaction with one of those accounts, we're also going to censor that.
1: So as as far as I understood, kind of now the situation is if you're uh, an American citizen uh, and you want to withdraw or you, you had kind of deposited previously uh, to Tornado, uh, as far as I understood, you can request that uh, yeah. and, and kind of, well, quite likely you are actually allowed uh, to do it. Uh, so if that is allowed, then, I mean, then you might have practical problems actually doing it because, again... Uh, some of the underlying uh, infrastructure might make that impossible for you.
0: will they roll it back now that they know because like what you're talking about here is OFAC actually issued some clarity surprisingly on the d- like the day after. I released the last episode, so we didn't have any of that info when we did it. But yeah, OFAC released an update, an FAQ where they actually did outline, if you had money in Tornado and you're innocent and you can prove that, how do you actually get it out? So there are ways. But what you're saying is like even to try to access that because other members of the community, other sort of tools have blocked any address touching it, you might not be able to succeed at making
1: that request. It's definitely not the case that Ethereum is is, is is totally censoring and it's impossible. But it just became quite a bit harder because uh, because many tools you would usually rely on uh, might not be working. And yeah, and, and to your previous question, I think, I hope, or well, I, I saw it in some places, but I, I hope it will also happen further that some have kind of reacted immediately, maybe overreacted immediately and now are, are now peddling back. And kind of are now doing, uh, are becoming more permissive again. But of course, it, it, it showed where the choke points are, where the forces of centralization are. Do you think it's kind of a good
0: thing? I know it's a bit funny to say, but it's like, it really, for me at least, it also shone a light on exactly where those weaknesses were. And yeah, it brought up a lot of things, I feel. It also, I mean, personally, it also made me kind of go, okay, where... Where do I stand on a lot of this stuff? Like that was something maybe in the past I've been, I don't know, just going along, learning about tech, not really thinking about. So it's kind of useful.
1: No, for sure. For sure. I mean, I think it's probably too early to answer that. But yeah, it certainly certainly has has kind of uh, increased the awareness of those whole issues. It certainly has uh, to some extent... um, Brought more attention to I don't know projects like that. kind of that try to make it very very easy for individual or well as easy as possible uh, for individuals uh, to become validators. But I think it's it's by no means clear at this point whether the willingness to make Ethereum a neutral platform will be yeah kind of strong enough to overcome. Yeah, certainly, yeah, simply centralization forces that clearly do exist.
0: It does almost seem like it creates a bit of a schism where some groups used it to identify places where they could work to decentralize further. Others were kind of moved more in the direction of like, how does one comply more? Right. Do you actually feel that? Do you feel within the community that sort of split
1: I, I feel more more the uh, the split to question kind of what is an acceptable level of um, centralization or or censorship. So a lot of the not the guys, the flashbot guys and kind of others who are currently also in in positions of um they say okay, if things would get worse then then we would do this and that or then we would uh, kind of uh, stop offering the service or, or and so on. Uh, and, and again, I think to me the main question is, or they 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 seem to say, yeah, as long as I don't know twenty percent of the blocks are still not censored, then that's fine. Uh, to me, that's not fine. Mm. Um, to me, kind of the current situation with like roughly fifty percent of the blocks being censored is absolutely not fine. But yeah, I mean that that is that's not a black and white answer, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think the other thing maybe to note is like you're not based in the U.S. And we learned in the last episode what it means to be a U.S. citizen in the case of these sanctions. Although I did hear like anyone around the world could still get in trouble for interacting with them. But like, especially for U.S. citizens, it's, it's more intense. And a lot of these teams, like, do you actually see it a little bit as like a U.S. and non-U.S.? Are most of those teams that are complying happen to be like U.S. entities or they have a lot of employees there?
1: Maybe. although kind of the guy who's actually in prison is in prison in Europe, in the Netherlands. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And not in the US. And the tornado developers that are in the US are seem okay. to be fine. Uh, so it's not that clear. Although, kind of, of course, on the sanction on the sanction issue, uh, of course, that's certainly uh, more problematic for US entities.
0: Mm. So I think it's time for us to sign off. But I I want to ask you sort of a last thing on like, how, what kind of advice would you give to people as? I mean, there is sort of a, a worry that we're going to see more actions like this. What do you think, when these things happen, how do you think people should be reacting maybe differently than they did this time around?
1: In the uh, actual situation, um, there's so and so much you can do. But certainly, like, you can ask you cre- the question right now, uh, in whatever position you are, of kind of how would would you act and uh, in, in kind of what kind of what, what what is your power uh, in a way? And uh, do you want to hold this power or are there ways that you can uh, give up this power?
0: Mm. So you're basically saying to the to anyone who has, who could potentially be impacting something like this in the future, those who can centralize, those who can make these decisions, to ask themselves if they want to be in that position. And if not, how can they like no longer need to be in control of these things? Yep. Basically, it sounds like you're like, decentralize everything.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that—that—that that, that, is—that is the one thing. Yeah, at least on such important um, kind of infrastructure components, I would say yes. Uh, on on many other things, uh, that's that, that's not required. But kind of this very core concept of does the transaction uh, gets included into a chain, um, I would say absolutely. We mm. need to decentralize everything.
0: And actually, something we didn't get to talk about, and that was something that came up through this, was did de- decentralization actually save it? In this case, not really. In ter- It turns out like decentralization can help certain parts maybe of the stack keep their neutrality. But in the case of Tornado, I mean, they were also a somewhat decentralized entity. There were smart contracts. There was a DAO.
1: To be fair, it is still possible to use uh, Tornado. Uh, and in that sense, decentralization helped. But it certainly became much much harder if not impractical for uh for absolutely most users cool
0: martin thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us your perspective on this and like i mentioned it would be great to have you on again at some point when the merge when your merge is over so we can talk about gnosis chain a bit more
1: cool thank you so much
0: And I want to say a big thank you to the ZK Podcast production team, Tanya, Henrik, and Rachel. And to our listeners, thanks for listening.